Coming up this week on the Smitty and Mitty Show, we recap our 2021 Movember live show, which happened last weekend. We'll be joined by two guests, Cody Ohm and Michael Landsberg. Two great conversations you won't want to miss. Coming up next. And now. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Start your engines! 90% of the time, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. The show that's got everyone saying... You're so dumb. For real. With Smitty. What you just said is one of the most idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. And Smitty. I've been in this business 15 years. What's your name? you. That's my name. (laughs) This is the Smitty Mini Show. Welcome back to the Smitty and Mitty Show here. Thank you for joining us for yet another week here as we have an exciting show coming your way. Today we're going to be talking Movember as last weekend we wrapped up our 2021 Movember Live show with a fantastic show, including interviews from Cody Ohm and Michael Landsberg, which you'll hear on the show today. Big thanks to our sponsors, Gold Line Curling, the choice of champions, and Dave Middleton at Sun Life Financial. Life is brighter under the sun for making this show possible every single week. As always, check out our podcast. comes out every Monday as well. And you can find us on Rogers TV, both in London and in uh, the Gray County, Fridays and Saturday night, so check it out there locally. Lots coming up on the show today as we recap our 2021 Movember live show and our 2021 Movember campaign, which was an absolutely massive success. We'll talk about later on just how much money we raised and just how much we blew our goal out of the water coming up later on in the show. Let's get into things, though, and let's welcome on our first guest. He is Cody Ohm, a local to the Port Elgin area, and a guy that uh, he can talk about his mental health struggles, and he's going to talk to you here on the show this week. Cody, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, Thanks for joining the show, and and thanks for being a part of this fantastic Movember show. Yeah, thanks for having me, boys. I appreciate the, uh, the invite. I'm looking forward to the chat. Well, we appreciate you sitting down with us. First of all, it's good to see you. I haven't seen you in a, in a long time. We were just reminiscing about the last time we probably saw each other south of the border when, when you and Chris came down to visit, and that was quite a night, but we won't, uh, we'll let the imaginations run wild on that and not, not, to, not divulge too much of what went on. Um, but, so you played you play junior hockey, um, yeah. hockey at a very high level, a lot of sports, and then at one point, it, uh, it kind of took a turn for you. When, when, did it, when, when did everything kind of fall apart, if you will? Yeah. So I really started to, things kind of really took a turn, like my second, third, third year university or third year of university. So like my last year of a junior. Uh, so like growing up, like you said, played all the sports kind of hockey took a bit of a priority as I got older, didn't play pro did the whole triple A junior hockey thing. And then my last year of junior is when I started to kind of fall off the rails a bit. You had some concussion problems and not right away you didn't link that to some of the mental health problems that you had which is one of the biggest problems that we see nowadays is people aren't necessarily linking these things but as we learn and the most important thing is that we're learning as we go that some of these things are definitely linked together Mm -hmm. yeah so at the time when i was so second third uh, that year when i started to to struggle a little bit it it happened pretty quick Uh, so basically within a few short months you know, I couldn't sleep. I was super anxious. I had no drive. My mood was in the shitter. Um, and, uh, literally I ended up quitting school, quitting hockey, uh, like drinking every day. 
and just became just completely different person. And at the time we had no idea that the link between the concussion, like we had no idea that the concussions were impacting this. And that's part of, you know, why I spent such a long time trying to find answers. Um, but in terms of like kind of the story behind that. So obviously that stuff happened, you know, I was doing my best to hide it, you know, paint a smile on my face. I'm fine making excuses. Uh, but eventually my parents stepped in they're like, okay, something's wrong. Like, let's start looking for answers. Um, so yeah, naturally with them, like first stop was a family doctor kind of went in there. We had no idea, like, how do we even approach this stuff? Didn't even really know what like anxiety or depression was back then. Uh, but walked into the family doctor, I kind of unpacked, how I was feeling to the best of my ability. And, you know, I don't want to shit on any family doctors, but you know, first thing he says is, you know, you've got depression, there's a chemical imbalance in your brain. I'm going to give you this pill. It's going to solve all your problems without asking me any background questions whatsoever. And, you know, I, I left that, uh, that, uh, uh, doctor's appointment with some pretty high hopes and expectations thinking that this thing would, you know, make everything better. And like I said, that was the start of three and a half years seeing 40 plus doctors trying to find an answer. So, you know, during that time, I saw so many different types of people. I saw multiple family doctors, naturopaths, psychologists, therapists, saw a hypnotist at one point, uh, I was literally willing to just like try anything or talk to anybody that could potentially help. Uh, but nothing was working. And about two years into that whole thing, I got some blood work back, uh, finally. And to my surprise, uh, my testosterone level was actually zero and doctor I had at the time just kind of like looked at the test, looked at me. He's like, Oh, don't worry about that, man. Like you're a healthy guy. Like it's, it's just a mistake. And my, my, myself and my family were kind of like, no dude, like that's a bit of an issue. It's a red flag. Let's at least test it again. And, you know, sure enough, same result came back and doctor goes, okay, I think you have a problem. So at the time too, I had, um, I started doing a little bit of research and started to see like a link between like low testosterone and depression and anxiety and all the stuff that I was experiencing, but I had no idea why. Uh, but anyway, doctor prescribed or sent me to an endocrinologist, uh, waited six months to get in there. And by this point I was both inpatient, had experiences both inpatient and outpatient with the mental health hospital, downtown Toronto. Uh, so I was a mess, like completely off the grid, uh, in my own world, just trying to deal with this stuff. Uh, waited six months to go and see this guy. And the first thing that he said was that he wasn't going to help. Uh, so he actually accused me of taking steroids because of my physical appearance and assumed that that was the reason my natural production shut off. Um, you know, meanwhile, I hadn't touched a drug, uh, in my life and I was like 130 pounds. So like, I don't know where he was getting that from. If you were, uh, you weren't doing it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So meanwhile, I just like worked out and played sports my whole life. So, you know, I left that, that, uh, doctor's appointment pretty crushed. And I saw two more endocrinologists after that, that exactly, pretty much exactly said the same thing. Um, but at the same time too, my, my parents and I weren't really willing to give up and ended up getting a referral to this guy named Dr. Comer, uh, out of Burlington, Ontario. And little did I know he was the head doctor for the Toronto rock does a lot of work with lacrosse Canada works with veterans like the army, that kind of stuff. And my experience with him was completely different. And this is where the concussion and the connection really comes in. But basically I walked into uh, that appointment and at this point I was crushed. Like I just didn't really care. I didn't really want to be there, but I walked in, I was wearing like my own town grays hockey jacket and a Chicago Blackhawks hat. And first question he asked me is if I played sports and I'm like, fuck, why are you asking me this man? And but I was like, of course, yeah. He's like, what'd you play? I was like, hockey. He's like, how many concussions have you had? And I said, well, I don't know, at least three, but I, I guarantee you I've played through a bunch more. And he goes, okay, I think I know the problem. So Comer began to explain how that when you get a concussion, it causes inflammation in the brain. And that inflammation can lead to the dysfunction uh, of your pituitary gland, which is the gland that produces all your hormones. 
Um, and your hormones are, are critical for your overall health and well-being, right? So he basically explained the science behind it, but um, basically explained how the concussions led to the dysfunction, caused my basic my body to basically produce none of it, and that was the root cause why I was feeling like shit. Uh, so Comer put me on hormone replacement therapy. Uh, I started injections literally that day. Uh, within a month, it was a night and day difference. I was driven. I was happy. Uh, I was back to myself. I could sleep. Uh, within three months, I was off all medication. So I was on so much shit, uh, a cocktail of drugs, cocktail of supplements that all these other healthcare professionals put me on. And, and I'm not here to shit on, um, their practices by any means. Like I, I, I think they all have merit, but it just didn't work for me, um, because we weren't addressing the underlying cause. Um, but yeah, ended up completely night and day difference within three months of seeing Comer and putting the connection uh, and making the connection between the concussions that I had and the, the mental health adversity that I was facing. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of, I just rambled, but that's basically how it went down. That's great. There's a lot there. Let's unpack it. Let's go back to the beginning where you, before, before your family came to you and, and said that they saw a problem, that they saw a change in you, did, were you self-aware that there was a change? Did you know, or was it like, did, was there some denial happening at the beginning? I think there was a bit of both. Um, you know, I was feeling like crap. Uh, I had no energy. I couldn't sleep. I was super anxious. Um, I always had like a little bit of anxiety in terms of like going to into new environments, right? Like first day of school or new classes or, or whatever. But, you know, it came to the point during that time where I was just, I was crippled. I wouldn't want to leave my house and I couldn't sleep. I'd wake up fucking crying in the morning. And like when it, when it came to that point where I was like completely withdrawing myself from school and using alcohol as like a coping mechanism and like waking up hungover the next day, and like, it was just a slippery slope, you know, about a month in, like, I kind of like, yeah, like I, I do have a problem here, but I wanted to neglect it. I didn't want to let on that I was dealing with this stuff because I didn't even know how to talk about it. Um, so I was very grateful. Like I've got an awesome family and, and they eventually stepped in because they saw such a drastic change. And, you know, when your parents are paying for you to go to school and you're not going to class, it's a bit of a problem. So that's why uh, I think they stepped in, but um, obviously I wasn't myself either. So the, the months that you uh, like multiple, multiple, multiple months that you spent going from doctor to doctor and not having an answer and having people tell you that there's nothing wrong or that what's wrong could be fixed by one pill. What, like, what was the feeling there? How, how do you get through so many doctors just telling you that there's nothing it's in your head or that you were your own cause? Yeah. So, I mean, I've got so many different opinions on that. For me, it was a bit of a roller coaster because this whole journey was new to me and you know, I went into every appointment with some hopes and expectations. And, you know, a lot of them told me that, you know, this pill would solve the problem. The supplement would really help, you know, doing these exercises would, you know, make you feel better and help you create some more momentum and get out of the rut that you're in. But, you know, it, it never really worked. And I would put in the work, I would do the work, but there was a, you know, a physiological issue with, my, like, I wasn't producing the hormones required to feel good. Um, so it, it was really, really tough um, to go through that experience. But, uh, you know, I always knew like there was all this, like, there's always this little voice in the back of my head and it was just like, you know, you're not going to be in the situation forever. And my parents are very persistent too. So we didn't want to give up. We knew that something was different. We just didn't know what, and, you know, with their help, we just kept on trucking. So I want to talk a little bit about, uh, your brand head first and, and kind of the movement that you're trying to start there, raising awareness for the links between concussions and mental health, because it's not something that is really out there a lot when people think about mental health and sports, because in, in athletes, a lot of us deal with mental health, but you might not first think to link it 
to concussions or even injuries in sports. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy that that connection still really isn't being made. Um, I mean, the motive behind why I started this whole thing in the first place is, you know, after I found out the root cause of, you know, my issues um, and, and, you know, going through that three and a half years, uh, during that time, I actually had four guys I played hockey with take their own lives. So I was kind of like, you know what, like, I don't know for sure if these guys went through the exact same thing that, you know, I did, but they could have. And I thought that by packaging up my experience, you know, I could potentially help somebody else. And, you know, I put that, I packaged it up in this Facebook post. Uh, I was nervous as shit. I ended up pressing the submit button. Uh, and to my surprise, I got a lot of attention. And, you know, from that, you know, thousands of messages started pouring in. And I started to realize that the, this is a problem. Like there's so many people that, you know, have had concussions, not just in hockey, but in car accidents, falling off their bike, you know, just other things. And, and no one was drawing the connection between the concussion and the mental health stuff. And, you know, concussions too, there's so many misconceptions around those. Like the majority of people don't know what a concussion is. They think you have to be knocked out to have one. Um, you know, you can get a concussion from heading a soccer ball too many times. Right. Um, and there's so many different signs and symptoms that can happen. Like every concussion is different. Uh, Comer refers to them as like snowflakes. Right. Um, and, you know, it's more than just like the light sensitivity and, you know, headaches and, and all the, the typical things that th- people think of that stuff alone can cause mental health issues. Right. Like not being able to like put up with people, deal with lights, focus, all that kind of stuff. Um, but there's gut issues, there's hormonal issues, there's vestibular issues, vision issues, hearing issues. And all of those things can, you know, bleed into each other and just create a really slippery slope for somebody if you don't know how to deal with it properly. So what do we do? Because I remember when I played hockey, like I, I kind of remember once in a playoff game, I got hit behind the net. I hit my head hard. I'm mm-hmm. almost positive I was knocked out because I don't even remember getting back to the bench, but I played the next shift because there's a playoff game. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that that happens a lot. And you talked about, you know, being a young kid playing junior and not really wanting to take that backseat and say, Hey, I'm hurt. I need to take shifts off to see what's going on. So mm-hmm. how do we break that stigma? How do we break that um, culture of, I'm going to call it masculinity, even though it's not, cause it, I'm sure it happens in women's sports too. Um, mm-hmm. But that, that feeling that, you know, I'll be fine. I just need to shake it off. Yeah. So I think, I think there's definitely a, a number of factors that go into that. Um, you know, number one is like the awareness and the education, like, the like people should be aware of like the implications that concussions can actually have. Um, and, you know, I think the pro and, and have protocols in place in order to deal with it. So that really starts with like a top down approach and also like reinforcing the narrative, like, you know, you playing through that is actually putting yourself at risk and, you know, it's not putting your team in a good spot either. Um, I think it does get tougher as you start to climb the ranks and stuff and like your position on a team and money gets involved. Like for me, when I made the jump to junior, I was never the best player anymore. So you know, if I were to, you know, raise my hand and sit out a few games, I was either jeopardizing my spot in the lineup or potentially jeopardizing my spot on the team. Um, so I think, you know, there needs to be conversations around that, but I really think it's like a top-down approach. Um, and, you know, there needs to be training involved and there needs to be shifts within the locker room as well. And, you know, these types of conversations have to be normalized. And again, it has to be reinforced with, you know, it's okay to raise your hand, but it's also the smart thing to do, right? Like, um, if you raise your hand and you sit out for a bit and you properly re- recover, there's a better chance of you coming back better, <laughs> right. And, and, and being able to play again. But if you keep persisting through these injuries, you know, you're just going to be put, putting yourself in a really shitty situation. That's not only going to affect your ability to play sport, but really affect your ability to live life outside of it. Um, but again, I, I really just think it's like a top-down approach. Um, and obviously there's a, an awareness component too, but, um, 
yeah, it, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. There's a lot of moving parts. I definitely think, but there's been a lot of progress made over the last couple of years, but there's still a lot of work to do. Now tell us a little bit about the response from people um, since you started head first. I mean, I imagine that a lot of people find this comforting and find this a, a great place to land because you're not a doctor. You're not someone that has a degree in, you know, psychology or anything like that. You're someone who is like them. You're relatable. You're someone that, that they can relate to. I'm an athlete. I had a concussion. I'm having mental health problems. You're someone that I can relate to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I packaged up that initial post like five years ago, threw it out to the world. It got a lot of attention. Um, thousands of people started reaching out and, you know, the majority of those people were just other athletes and people like me. And they, you know, part of that message was, you know, you're the first person that I can talk to about this stuff. And right away, as soon as that they could make that, that connection, the armor came off and they weren't afraid to talk about that stuff anymore. So I think, you know, that approach to this whole conversation needs to be had more often, you know, too many times when we're talking about concussions or mental health, there's an authority figure, or, you know, some talk or whatever. Um, but there's no really relatability factor to it. So like you might know of the issue, but you're not, you don't feel comfortable opening up. And I think that's, that's part of the culture shift that needs to happen too. Um, but yeah, the, the response is absolutely crazy. And I think, yeah, it's just (laughs) being able to like see somebody else in your position makes it a lot more comfortable for you to, to really open up and, and and to talk about things. All right. Two things here to wrap us up. Uh, one, who were the people that you just couldn't have done this without you couldn't have got through um, what would, what I'm assuming is the roughest point of your life so far. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, a few people, obviously my parents, um, they were huge without them, you know, who knows what would be, yeah. Who knows what happened? Uh, Dr. Comer for sure. Uh, so the specialist in Burlington that put two and two together, him and I are actually really tight now. And then also, you know, honestly, like the, the crisis prevention, you know, not only like the hotline, but like, uh, the mental health hospital downtown, like for me, there was a couple of really close calls and without them and their help and their intervention and, you know, their support with my family too, it, it could have been, um, not good. Right. So I think it's really important to know that those, for the people to know, like those resources are there, there's no shame in reaching out to them and they're actually fucking awesome. Um, there's absolutely zero judgment. And like, you call a crisis help, uh, you, cr- you call one of those crisis lines and, um, you know, you, they can change your state pretty quick. And, uh, I think it's really important for people to know that it's not, there's no shame or judgment, uh, involved in those types of conversations and and those resources are there. All right. Take us home. Uh, let people know where they can find you, uh, where they can follow you, how they can uh, get more on your story and how they can reach out if they need help. Yeah. So right now I think the easiest spot is just my Instagram. It's literally at head first movement. Um, I can put, I can give you guys my emails and you maybe put that in the show notes too. So if anybody wants to have a conversation that way, I'm, I'm more than happy to, uh, to chat via email and go from there. But yeah, those are the, the two easiest places. Thanks to technology. I've put it on the screen right now. <laughs> you can't see it, but we, it's can, we can't there. see it, but when everyone's watching this, it'll be there. So, uh, make sure you go give Cody a follow. Cody. Thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you on our Movember live show. Uh, talk a little bit about your story and get the word out. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, boys. I really appreciate it and appreciate all the work you guys are doing with this. It's awesome. I'm Dave Middleton, a proud Sun Life financial advisor, and I've got some fantastic ideas for the money that's building up in your bank account due to COVID-19. Make more and protect more. Visit sunlife.ca slash dave.middleton. Now back to the Smitty and Mitty Show. 
This week on the show, we are recapping our 2021 November campaign in which we were able to reach our fundraising goal. And along the way, we got to talk to some fantastic people. Before the break, we talked and heard the interview with Cody Ohm. Cody, a uh, Port Elgin native, uh, talked to us about his struggles with mental health and some of the solutions that he found and, and the long, long winding road it took for him to figure out finally that he was dealing with some mental health problems and what led him there so big thanks to cody for joining us we're gonna have another conversation coming up shortly here with michael landsberg he's a friend of the show we had him back on episode 52 of the podcast um that was a a few months ago and he was more than willing to come on the show and, and talk to us for our 2021 november campaign live show Uh, last weekend so michael will join us in just a little bit make sure you hold on because you'll hear our fundraising total in our next segment on the show michael thanks for joining us it's a pleasure to have you back on the show Uh, a friend of the show officially now so thanks for coming back on and and joining us for this november live show yeah thanks for having me uh thanks for calling me friend of the show it must be quite Uh, an honor i was about to say that yeah, I guess it doesn't take that much to be friend of the show. I mean, I've only been on once before, but uh, hey, uh, you know what? Making new friends is awesome. So let's have some fun. Well, you came back. That's what makes you friend of the yeah. show. As long as you come back, you're good if, to go. If someone answers our text, they're automatically friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, you know, I know that. But, you know, um, I have done that actually in, in, in the past, obviously, with really famous people where you kind of make it sound like, oh, my God, that, like that guy must be uh, on the show all the time. And uh, the the truth would be different from that perception, but um, that's cool. Good to see you. All right. So, anyone who wants to hear uh, Mr. Landsberg's backstory and all that, please go back to the episode that he was on uh, the podcast. Hear that interview it was an amazing interview. We're not going to do any of that today. We just want to strictly focus on mental health. Um, yourself, your battle with uh, with mental health. When did that start? Can you give us a background, just quickly, of of when it started and what you go through? Yeah, for sure. How long, uh, how long do you want to give me? And you can start a timer on it because I could like literally I can fill 45 minutes uh, or I can do it in one minute. So you call it and then you time it. Two and a half. Two and a half. Two and, two and a half, half minutes. <laughs> okay. Um, so in three, two, one. My first experience with uh, mental illness um, was my first experience. I battled anxiety from the time that I can ever remember. Uh, but at the time, I didn't know that I was battling anxiety. I I don't think I had ever heard the word. I had never heard for sure of general anxiety disorder. I for sure had never heard about panic disorder. I for sure had never heard about any of that. I just thought, like, I I don't even know if I thought there was something wrong with me. I just thought that, wow, this is really messing me up. So I had these fears back in the day, uh, and the day being probably from the time that I can first remember, uh, let's go with grade two. So when I was uh, seven years old, I, I had all these fears that other kids didn't have and it prevented me from doing things. Uh, one of the fears I had was being around people that would throw up. It's called emetophobia. And it's amazing how many times I've said that in a speech and someone has gone, me too. And it's like, oh my God, where were you when I was 10 years old? If I would have known that somebody else on the planet was battling the same thing as me, it would have made a huge difference to me. And that's one of the reasons why I do what I do. So someone can go, hey, you know what? Me too, Landsberg, me too. Uh, so that uh, has been with me for, uh, for all of my life. Uh, and I'm speaking about anxiety, but it wasn't until the second year of OTR, so 1998, that I started to experience depression. 
And it was so shocking for me what it was. Like I can remember when I figured out that there was something really wrong with me because it happened so slowly that you sometimes don't know that, that something terrible is happening to you because it's such a minuscule change, but that tiny change happens every day and they add up to major changes. And I remember when I kind of unraveled it and thought, okay, I got to get in to see a psychiatrist. I thought to myself, wow. This is nothing like I thought depression was. I, I wanted to go around and apologize for every person that I had judged based on hearing that they had had depression or, or uh, nervous breakdowns. It was just, it was so much worse, a million times worse than I thought it would be. Uh, and that's when it started. So that's my history of mental illness. The last, uh, the last 20 years I've been, uh, uh, I've been, um, for the most part, pretty good with a year or a year and a half in between pretty goods, um, where I fell to the bottom of the hole. And the last time that I was in the bottom of the hole was 2008. Um, a story that I tell quite often, November 24th, 2008 Marriott hotel in Montreal room 521, 4 AM in the morning. I knew why people take their own lives. And at the time I sat on the edge of the bed and I thought, wow, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a danger to myself because I had hope, whereas a lot of people don't have hope. And I had the hope because I'd been through it before, but I can remember thinking, wow, I just have no desire whatsoever to keep fighting and going through this, man. Eventually I would have worn, I would have worn out and I, I don't know what I would have done, but that kind of taught me a lesson that obviously I've carried into today. And, uh, and here I am today with you guys. Three, three and a half minutes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was, I knew I was over. <laughs> not bad. I, I thought if you're not going to tell me, I'm not going to stop. No, you can it, keep was, talking. it was the last little story, which we're totally okay with you adding on there, but I think you might've been right on it without it. <laughs> you, you know, I, I thought you were going to chime me. So uh, I got the, the timer, timer up. Off. I just, I'm not going to cut you off. I'm never going to cut you off. You can cut me off. Like, let's practice. You gotta, you gotta have, you got you gotta see me as an equal. All right. That's right? enough, so, Michael. Uh, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you know what? Nicely done. Thank you. Uh, what a, we, a lot of this show and a lot of the focus of this live show that we're doing is to start the conversation and to educate people and not just educate the people that are watching our show, educate ourselves. What are some of the red flags that you might not have noticed early on, but you now know as, as a red flag from early on in, in your depression and your battle with anxiety? Uh, a great question. Uh, and one that I kind of alluded to, which is that um, sometimes you don't know, right? Um, most people do not get hit by depression the way you would be hit by a migraine headache, right? No one who gets migraines goes, uh, I don't know, something. I don't know. I have this like this. I don't know what this is. Like, you know, you have a migraine. But depression can be just this tiny change that happens in such a small way over a long period of time. Um, whether that period of time would be six months or a year, uh, you just don't know it's happening. And bit by bit, you are replaced so it's, it's like somebody comes in the middle of the night, probably the tooth fairy. That fucker's been going for me since my dad, who was a dentist, started giving me money for my teeth. The tooth fairy comes, uh, or, or someone else, comes and they take just a tiny bit of you. But it's so small that you don't know it's happening. And they replace that tiny bit with someone that you don't know and you don't want to be and you don't like. And eventually all of you gets taken and all of you gets replaced. Uh, and so... Sometimes it can be uh, as simple as hearing a guy like me speak, talking about it, where people will go, wait a sec, I think he's talking about me. And the simple question, guys, is this. 
The simple question is, have you changed? Are you you? And that sometimes can be really hard, uh, you know, to uh, un unless you really look at yourself in the mirror and decide, okay, am I going to be honest with myself? But, but here, here's how I look at it. I look at it this way, that who you are uh, and who you want to be uh, is the goal. And for me, I had lost that. And if I asked myself this question, which is what I pose to uh, anybody who's watching today, including obviously the two of you guys, that if you think back to, okay, how am I today? How was I, for instance, a year ago or two years ago? What brought me joy two years ago? Um, you know, for me, I call it the basic joy test, which is um, what brings you basic joy? Not like a big thing, because we don't have big things happening in our lives all the time, but just one small thing. And for me, it's a sip of a cup of coffee in the morning. And when I have been severely depressed, that has brought me no joy. But this morning, when I woke up, and had a sip of a cup of coffee, I kind of went, yeah, yeah, that was, that, you know, that was nice. So my question for you is, and when I say you, I'm talking to anyone who this might apply to, and sometimes you know it's you, uh, is, uh, you know, do you experience basic joy from basic things in your life that you once upon a time did? And if the answer is no, or if the answer is not very often, or if the question is, when was the last time you felt good about something? If the answer is, I can't remember, or only once over the last year, that's how you know you got to get help. And you got to get help because you owe it to yourself to get help. Because, you know, uh, guys, giving up your life to something like depression, giving up a year of your life to something like depression is tragic. You know, uh, suicide is the greatest tragedy with depression and mental illness, but it's not the only one. This can maybe be a tricky question. Um, no, it's not. Before no. that, before no, that, no, uh, don't don't think you got a tricky question for me. It, I want you know, it's more it's more tricky that I don't know how to phrase it to to, to point <laughs> it, in the right it's direction. It's tricky for him. Yeah. Um. So before that faithful conversation on off the record, where everything came out, and mm -hmm. and um, how much of who you were in public before that was a facade. See, that's uh, it's 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 a good question, not not a necessarily a, a tricky question. Uh, it, it depends on the time. Like uh, there were chunks of period of time in my life when uh, everything, everything that um, came across as positive was an act, was a facade. And that I was 100 percent putting on a facade uh, when I was at work, when I was uh, preparing for the show, uh, when I was on the show, for sure, when I was greeting guests, it was like 100 percent acting. None of it was really me because I was just so miserable. Uh, but when I got home, uh, as is the case with a lot of people, you got to have some place where you can say, OK, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be faking it because faking it is exhausting. So uh, there were times for sure, I mean, a year or a year and a half at a time when I was absolutely 100% faking it. So when you were alone and you were able to be yourself, did that bring you some relief? Uh, I, I don't think relief is the right word. It brought me, uh, it was less exhausting is what it was. So, you know, when, when, when it like, if you assume right now I'm having a bad day, my dog Wrigley is walking around. Hey Riggs. And he's, uh, he's looking, he's on the prowl. He's looking for something. Uh, it's been rainy here in Toronto for the last, uh, or today. So he hasn't really gone outside. So now he's gone. I'm just going to take you guys down. I'm going to drive you nuts. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's exhausting to, uh, to have to be someone that you're not. Uh, it's like every, it, because nothing is natural, right? 
if, if I'm having a really bad time at, in my life or bad day, but I mean, typically when I was at my sickest, they weren't just bad days, they were bad months or a bad year. And if I was having one of those periods of time, it was, it was like nothing is natural. So everything I have to, I have to find a place to generate it from. So the smile on my face, the energy in my voice, the compassion that I may have in my voice, the appropriate emotion, whatever it is for the surroundings, all of that, my enthusiasm for life, all of it has to be faked. And it's exhausting. So when I'm by myself in that kind of situation, I, I don't get relief as much as I do. Uh, I, I get to rest from the exhaustion of having to be someone that I'm not. Now, a lot of people will say that they don't want to be by themselves. And when you say by yourself, it doesn't have to mean alone, correct? Like you don't have to be sitting in a room just on your own to be by yourself. You can be with your family. You can be in a room with your family and still have that time to yourself. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, is what your family really needs to do in that situation is to say, look, no obligation. Because for me, uh, even now when I have a bad day, talking is painful for me. Uh, and I'm the last guy that you would uh, think to attribute that to. But I'm, I'm, I'm just like, I don't want to talk. The best thing you can do is just leave me alone. And I don't mind lying on the couch and watch family with uh, watch TV with my wife and my family. Um, but I don't want to engage in conversation. I don't want to have to try to pretend like I'm someone that I'm not. Uh, so yeah, you can, you can be with others as long as they're not thinking, okay, well, you know, let's, let's, let's bring Michael out of this place that he is because you can't bring me out. You can't, you can't save me in that situation. You can't, you can't, you can't say nice things to me that will make a difference. I mean, go ahead. They say like nothing wrong with saying nice things to people, but don't expect to be able to cure me or fix me any more than, uh, if I had a physical illness. Um, that was being treated medically that you could fix that. So now I want to do something a little different. I want to give you some of the stigmas, I guess, some things that maybe the older generation would say in contrast to what you're saying. Yeah. And I want to get your response to them. Sure. And, and the first one would be that everyone has a depressed day. And the difference between somebody who's clinically depressed and somebody who's not is that they're just able to pull themselves out of that. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, you heard Wrigley reacting to that. He, he got pissed <laughs> off. Everyone has, uh, how did you phrase it? Everyone has what? Bad days. Yeah, it's true. Everybody does have bad days. Uh, but that is one of the most annoying ones. Sure, everybody has bad days, of course. Um, but not everybody has mental illness days. Uh, you have to differentiate between the two. Another thing in that category that drives me nuts is when people say, we all go through it sometime. No, we don't all go through it sometime. We don't all have clinical depression, which is so serious that it is, um, you know, for some, fatal. We don't all have that. We all have bad days, but we don't all have depression, the illness days. Uh, and I almost wish we could create a new word for, um, for the illness, right? Because depression is used, as you just said, to, uh, you know, for people having bad days. Yeah, I'm depressed. You know, uh, shit, the Raptors, man. Looked like they were playing well, but not, not so much now, you know. I'm kind of down about that. No, but that's normal, right? Being down, being upset about life circumstances is normal. Being sad is normal, but being sad is not the same as being depressed. My mom died a couple of years ago. That makes me sad, but it does not make me depressed. All of us go through sadness, but not all of us go through depression. Uh, the next one would be that we see an increase in 
in suicides and in um, depression, clinical depression, because we are not teaching our kids how to deal with failure and deal with negativity. Yeah, I, I, I don't think necessarily there's any correlation between that at all. I, I, you know, I, I mean, there's so many dimensions to depression. It, it really is. It, it's like this all-encompassing word that means something to me um, specific. But um, there's different causes. There's different forms of it. Uh, but for the most part, uh, you know, I think what happens is um, we have brain chemistry uh, that's thrown off somehow. And that could probably happen or it does happen because of life circumstances that somehow, you know, you get worn down. For, for instance, people that lose a loved one can, um, can after six months, still be in, in terrible pain from their mourning. And you can say to them, uh, okay, well, you know, you should probably go talk to someone about this, right? You may need to go on medication. And they say, well, medication isn't going to bring back my husband or my wife. Uh, you can, your brain can get messed up because of circumstances. Um, so I, I don't know whether as the next, as your generation and the generation that's coming behind you has not had the benefit of the same kind of leadership parenting um, that my generation did. I, I kind of think it's the opposite. I kind of think of we're way more aware of it now. Uh, and I, I think parents, uh, you know, for the most part, are much more in tune with the idea that my kid is, um, you know, is battling something. My kid is not the way my kid was uh, two years ago. So I, I don't tend to agree with that at all. And, you know, it's still a cop-out. It's still trying to blame someone for this illness or have an explanation for this illness that needs to be explained basically by saying, my, my brain is fucked up, just like someone who has Parkinson's has, has something wrong with their brain. Uh, the difference is that you can do an MRI of someone with Parkinson's and you can see it with depression. Now it's very difficult to do that. We're kind of on the cusp of it, but that's at the heart of the stigma. The stigma is based on the idea that we can't see it. We can't feel it. You can't prove it. There's no blood test. There's no biopsy. There's no imaging for it. And therefore, all I know is what you tell me. And if I tend not to believe what you tell me, uh, because it fits my, um, if it's, how I want to see your illness, if this makes sense, then I'm not going to believe you. But if I could show you guys something, right? Uh, if I could show you, oh my God, take a look at this x-ray, you know, uh, th this, you know, like this was from a couple of days ago, this x-ray of my brain right there, you know, you can see this terrible depression. Or if I showed you a blood test that said my numbers are through the roof, that would end the discussion. But to date, we don't have that. Well, and I think that's what we what we see is the biggest problem surrounding the stigma of depression is that for a lot of people, they can't see it. They have no proof, if you will, that you really are going through that. And it's something that uh, for the younger generation, they're, they're taking to a lot easier, I think, than the older generations. But um, it's something that it's so tough to explain to people is that you can't always see it, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Oh, you, you can never see it, right? I mean, it, it, like I said, if you could prove it, if you could quantify it, if you could take a picture of it, um, then the stigma would largely disappear. If, if, for instance, 
you know, when I when I was experiencing severe depression, if you know, if I had a growth coming out of my head, that was a reflection of of what was going on in my brain. No one would look at it and go, I, I, you know, I don't see that as being a real illness. Of course, they would see it as a real illness. But as of right now, all you have to go on is what I tell you. Oh, you know, I wake up in the morning and I don't feel like getting out of bed. Well, in your own mind, you can rationalize that and say, well, sometimes I get up in the morning and I don't want to get out of bed. You know, I say, hey, you know, like the things that used to bring me joy, don't bring me joy anymore. And you could say, okay, well, you know, maybe you got to do new things or maybe we all go through that. So there's just this disconnect and this inability to prove that it's real that I think allows people to make judgments about this illness that they couldn't make if there was a way to prove it. Yeah, and I'm gonna, I'll throw a situation at you because I want to know how we should handle it. And it's, it's going to be the, the Ben Simmons thing that's happening right now, mm-hmm. where he is not reporting to the team, he's not getting paid because of it, and he is pleading a mental distress. And there's a part of me that thinks it's just to get paid because now the team can't pay him. But there's another part that says you have to take it seriously because he is saying that his mental health is distraught. Like you, how do we deal with that? Yeah, that's a that's a tough question, and uh, you know it's 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 so easy to. In, I mean, that's a great example. If you don't like Ben Simmons because you know he's uh, he's a point guard and he can't shoot, right? You know, if you don't like him because of that, you don't like his attitude, you don't like sort of the way he's carried himself in Philadelphia, and you find him to be a complainer. So then when, you know, he comes out and says that that there may be something wrong with him mentally, um, you know, the easy thing to do is to say eh, he wants to get paid or he's looking for sympathy or poor Ben Simmons. You know, he makes thirty two million dollars a year too damn bad. But those are all those are all foolish things to say that are easy to say, because it's easier for people to say Ben Simmons is faking this for sympathy and for money than it is to say that Ben Simmons has a genuine mental illness. And my, my attitude is, I'm trying to remember the context that this, someone asked me this, but, you know, I think you always got to err on the side of saying, okay, I believe you, right. You know, there's a, there's an an expression better to um, better to free nine guilty men than to convict one non-guilty person. Uh, it's better to err on the side of saying, okay, well, you know, Ben Simmons, hey, we'll take your word for it because that's all we have to go on than it is to question Ben Simmons and the next Ben Simmons and the person that you work with and someone down the street where you go, I I don't know. I don't know if I buy that. It's too convenient to be able to say I have a mental illness. My attitude is that, you know, you pretty well got to believe people because of the danger of not believing them. It's like suicide. You know, people will will say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not not me in this case, but I have heard repeatedly people saying, you know, I'm a danger to myself. Uh, and not everyone who says that is necessarily a danger to themselves. Uh, but you are much better to accept everybody at face value and say, hey, if you tell me that, I believe that, than you are to say, I don't know, like you don't, you don't seem like that. And, you know, most people don't go through with it. And, you know, I think you just got to err on the side of, you know, being cautious. And that's to say, I believe you. Yeah. And we saw a similar thing in the Olympics with Simone Biles and, and exiting the gymnastics competition, right? It's people want to try and find a a different reason. They want to try and find, oh, she wasn't doing well before. She just wanted out of it so that she didn't have to, you know, finish poorly. Right. But it's so much better. And, And really at the end of the day, why wouldn't you believe her? 
Like, what do we have? What do I have against Simone Biles to not say, yeah, yeah I believe you? Yeah, I mean, that, that, is, uh, that is the question. And the answer is that, uh, I mean, in, in this case, uh, someone with a public persona uh, is much loved, but also much despised, right? Jealousy, um, there's racism that I would certainly attach to this. Uh, there's a whole bunch of dimensions where it just fits your brain perfectly to say, nah, she's, she's, just, she's just afraid to compete or, or she's lost her edge or she's uh, whatever, as opposed to, yeah, you know what? I have sympathy for her because obviously, um, you know, there's something wrong with her that's preventing her from competing in certain events. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just easy to do that, right? You know, you're at work and there's a guy that you don't like at work and that guy has to take off time. Uh, it's much easier to say, okay, well, you know, obviously he's just weak or obviously he's just looking for sympathy or he's looking for a payday without doing any work. That fits the mold that some people want to have of others when, in fact, I don't know many people uh, that would, would make up a mental illness to try to get out of, uh, out of work and, you know, get on paid leave. I mean, people lie about not having mental illness as opposed to lying about having it. So uh, it's, a, it's a really valid question. That's a really important area. Yeah, I think the problem is sometimes maybe we, we look for the physical um, things we can see Right. And, and when something like what happened to Simone Biles, like all we can see is that she didn't land that and now she left. And that's kind of what we put one and one together. And that it's that easy. And it's because the other option is taking her at her word. And I don't know her. I don't know how I can take her at her word. You know, it's a, it's a weird little situation where the physical evidence is telling us one thing, but the stuff we can't see is going to tell us something else. Yeah. It's a problem with mental illness in general. Right. You know, when, I remember when, uh, when I first started talking about it after the Stefan Riche show, um, there was uh, someone called me up from the star and did a story about this, right? And a guy at work came up to me. My nickname at work was Mitch. And, the, and this is what he said. Hey, Mitch, uh, you are you, good job, man. You are so smart. And I went, smart? I, I didn't expect you to say that. He goes, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I know you know that a lot of people think you're arrogant or whatever. So you figured, yeah, you know what? I'll make up this illness and people won't really like me. I go, do you really think that that's what I'm doing? He goes, yeah, it's brilliant. You know, like I am not criticizing you. I go, so you, you, you really think that I would go on television and make up this illness? And he said this, he said, I have known you for the last 15 years. You do not suffer from depression. And I thought, okay, well, you know, that just means that I've been convincing. And that means that he doesn't understand that those of us who choose to fake it can fake it. Yeah, the, be the best trick for somebody with uh, a mental illness is to be able to hide it. That's the, one of the best things that, uh, that they can do. Um, quickly, we have about two minutes here. If you can just give us a wrap-up, Sick Not Weak, your organization, uh, wh what's, the, what's the goal of it? Uh, where can people find it? What is it? Yeah, I mean, the goal is, uh, the goal is actually what the name is. You know, it's one of those things where, it, you know, if I, if I came on your show and said, mental illness, sickness, not weakness. Thanks. Thanks for having me, man. Have a great day. You know, like that would be kind of weird, but there is a point there, right? You know, the name of the charity is the name of the cause, the name of the movement, the name of the revolution, so to speak, not to suggest that, you know, we've, uh, in, you know, we've started a revolution, but the perception of weakness when it comes to mental illness 
is the other part of the stigma. You know, one part is that you can't physically prove it by a test. And the second part is the fear of being perceived as weak. And if you think that mental illness is a weakness, you will never come out and say, hey, I am suffering from depression. If you believe that is an admission of I am weak. So that's what we are. Our goal is to get people to accept the fact that it's a sickness, not a weakness. Uh, and if we could do that with every person we do it with, the stigma disappears just a little bit. Well, Michael, thank you for joining us once again. Uh, two times on the show, you can officially be a friend of the show now. You know what? I am going to embrace that. You know, beforehand, I thought it's a little premature. It's like, it's like you know, we just started dating and you just asked me to. 25 minutes you. later, though, things have yeah, changed. But now oh, I'm ready to sign up. Yeah, these were great questions. You guys, I told you this last time. You guys are really um, thoughtful and uh, well-prepared. And the questions you ask are questions that I would ask myself if I was interviewing me. So my pleasure and good job. We're going to be like a dry cleaner. We're going to get all the pictures up on the wall of friends of the show. Thank you, Michael. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Goldline Curling is proud to support the Port Elgin Chrysler 2022 Ontario Tankard in Saugeen Shores. Powered by Bruce Power. February 9th through 13th at the Plex in Port Elgin. Goldline Curling, the choice of champions. Now back to the Smitty and Mitty Show. finishing off the show for yet another week and a big thank you to everyone for tuning in here as we recapped our 2021 november campaign and i know i've been teasing it throughout the show so well let's tell you what we did raise this year we set a goal of twelve hundred dollars and ninety twelve hundred ninety one dollars and we reached that goal we raised one thousand two hundred ninety five dollars to be exact so four dollars over the goal um which was an absolute stretch of a goal and we still made it so thank you to everyone who donated and a big thank you to everyone who tuned in to our november live show last weekend that does it for us this week here on the smitty mini show big thank you to our sponsors Goldline curling the choice of champions and dave middleton at sun life financial life is brighter under the sun for making this show happen thank you to michael landsberg thank you to cody ohm and thank you for listening we'll be back next week here on the smitty and mini show 